Uh, so today we're continuing in our sermon series. So we're looking at the Gospel of John, uh, and I know it's Advent, but John is just so good and uh, amazing for my own soul that I'm, my love for God is just deepening because of John's Gospel. Um, I didn't want to take a break. Um, so we're going to continue with John um, through Advent into the new year. And so today, as we look at John uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. You can follow along in your worship guides or on the wall behind me. And so let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. John 13, beginning with verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He said to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew what who was about to betray him. And that was why he said not all of you were clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that you would meet us, that you would serve us, that you would minister to our hearts as we consider your word for our lives this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I remember my final interview at Grace and Peace Presbyterian Church. Uh, Grace and Peace was a, a tiny church plant in the east end of Pittsburgh, and it just so happened to fall on Monday, Thursday, 2012. And Monday, Thursday is that Thursday of Holy Week. It's the Thursday leading up to, to Easter. And it's the it falls on the, it is a day that really commemorates this exact passage that we are reading this morning. It comes from this idea that of the last commandment. The last commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples is to love one another. It's, so it's an allusion to John 13, verse 34. But this interview did not occur across a cafe table or at a church office no, this was uh, an interview where there were two people, myself and Sam DeSocio. 
And we were in the basement, actually, of the church. We were warming the meal for Monday, Thursday, while 100-plus people were upstairs enjoying the first course of this meal and enjoying each other's company and fellowship. So Sam said this to me. This is how it is here. You may be scrubbing toilets or you may be stirring pasta, but this is the life of pastoral ministry, all in service to God's people. So now, why in the world would anyone want to do that? Because I went and worked with him, and now I am here where I am today. And so part of the answer to that question, as we look at this passage, we're thinking about Jesus and your service. Jesus and your service. And like if you're an outline person, here we have number one, the heart of Jesus. Number two, the act of Jesus. And three, the command of Jesus here. So Jesus and your service. As we begin thinking about this, let's first consider the heart of Jesus. And we see this in verses, verses one through four. And so we're looking very particularly at John's gospel here, but the other gospel accounts also talk about this same meal that Jesus shared with his disciples in the, the in this upper room. This is the Lord's Supper. This is communion. However, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke deal with that meal very briefly, but John all of a sudden hits the brakes to his gospel. He slows down to a, like a screeching pace, and John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16 all deal with the Lord's Supper. This is the final conversation that Jesus has with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And so these first four verses frame everything about those, that entire conversation. So we see this in verse 1. Now when the feast, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this, out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, there's two commentators who have these two separate ideas I want to join together, but here's the first commentator. Jesus' love has not been so emphatically identified as the fundamental motive for all of his actions, but this is when Jesus' love is identified for us. It is the passion story of which his love is the great theme. There, it is seen as a progressive and cumulative motive. That is, Jesus' love to the end and to the limits. He highlights here that this is Jesus' motive for everything that he did, Jesus' love. And here's the, the second thing from another commentator, Frederick Bruner, who I quote almost every Sunday. We do not often describe Jesus' historical ministry as his time of love or as his time of having loved his own. But that is exactly how the Apostle John summarizes Jesus' public ministry. Until now, John's gospel has not explicitly spoken of Jesus' love for his disciples or his friends, with the one exception of being Lazarus in John 11.5. I want to highlight this for you, because we often think about Jesus' earthly ministry in that term, where it says Jesus' public ministry, Jesus' teaching ministry. Or you could also take certain language from 
the Reformed tradition say this is his humiliation, that God the Son became a servant. God the Son endured the miseries of life. God the Son was buried. He was crucified and buried. But what John does is that John describes his entire ministry as this time of love. And so as, we, he, as John begins to talk about this uproom dis- discourse, this, up, this, these, this last conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, it's all centered from love. And ever since the very first chapter, not the very first chapter, the very first miracle in John 2, where Jesus turned water into wine, we've seen reference to this illusion that my time has not yet come or my hour is not at hand. But now we see here in verse 1, once again, that his, the time has come for him to depart from this world. The, the hour is actually now at hand. And so everything that Jesus did in his entire life was out of love for you. Everything that Jesus did in his ministry was out of love for you. Out of love, yes, for the Father, and also love for his own disciples. And he never stopped loving those disciples. He never stopped loving you. And it's actually on this side of the resurrection and ascension that we know that he continues to love us. So look at verse 2 here, because there's a retelling of the story. During supper... Actually, there's a retelling of the story, but this time there's a focus on the villains. So like in verse 1, it's about God, the Father, and sending God the Son, and how the Father and Son love the their own, but now there's a focus on the villains. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So all of a sudden, here we see this wonderful, we see this little dynamic here, where in verse 1, we see God the Father acting in love for his people, but now in verse 2, we see the, the forces of the devil actually want to go to war, even with God there, and so that, that, that really sets the scene, there's a conflict, there's, a, there's tension, and it underrides this entire passage, and it's going to continue to go and culminate in the cru- crucifixion. And see, like the following passage right after this is where Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and that's going to be Ju- Judas. So here Jesus is actually announcing that someone is about to betray him. In the next passage, Judas arises from the table, and he goes to do just that. But like looking at this passage, like where it says the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. So it was the devil who put this idea of betraying Jesus into the mind, into the heart of Judas. And where Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, for 30 coins. Now throughout scripture, there's this remarkable clarity at how the spiritual realm is involved in our own physical realm. There's angels, there's demons. But and there's this language of spiritual warfare that's also used that we undergo temptation we undergo through trials of sorts and so we face this front on three we face this war on three fronts where there's the devil there's the flesh ourselves I mean that's being ourselves and also the world so within scripture it's like we see this picture where the devil is active and so we see that that the 
demonic, that satanic, that satanic activity here where the devil's putting this idea into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. But this is a telling lesson to us that even as Jesus is working in this world in love for this world, in love for you, we should expect resistance to God. We should expect resistance to his gospel and his work in this world even from within the church. But what Jesus goes on further is that Jesus, while this is his heart, where he is, his heart loves his people, Jesus also acts. This brings us to our second point. Jesus acts on his love for us. And this is verses um, 4 to 11. See, this starts where Jesus displays his love for his disciples by arising. He gets up uh, during the course of dinner to wash the disciples' feet. So let me just pause for a moment and actually give some more of the historical context to what this would look like. Because naturally, there's, this, there's two foot washings in view in here. And here's the, and, but let me just say what the first one is not. So there could be two foot washings. One is when you would first arrive at someone's house. The, like you would, the host would wash your feet. It may not be the host, but it would be someone connected to the family. But it was a gesture of hospitality. Because what you wore on your feet during that time were sandals. You did not wear shoes or boots. You did not wear socks. So just to state the obvious, your feet would be dusty from walking. Perhaps even your feet would be blistered or injured. So not only was it hospitable, it was a kind and compassionate act. So as water would be available to wash your feet, there would also be olive oil to anoint feet to help um, soothe whatever injuries you would have. So that's like the first one. And that's not what Jesus is engaged in. But, and so the second one would occur, could occur at the dinner table, and that's exactly what happened. And while we eat at a dinner table, we sit down in chairs, that was not the case in Jesus' day. There would be a raised table, uh, just maybe like a coffee table height and perhaps a bit more, but it would be surrounded by uh, cushions. You'd be eating and you'd be reclined, lying on uh, your left side. And so what that's the foot washing, uh, that this foot washing would occur at that point in, at dinner time, not when you would come into someone's house. But look at John's gospel, uh, John's account here once again, because he slows down his storytelling, noting each step. Beginning in verse 4, he is during supper, he arose from the table, he took off his outer garments, he, so he took off like his, his sweater, he took a towel, he tied it around his waist, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash their feet. There is so many different layers, so many different steps, and like John just zooms in on each of these details. But this is a washing that's different from the act of hospitality. This is an act of a slave. The word is doulos. The, this is an act of a servant. And the reality is, is that no one would expect their Lord or their Savior or Master to be the slave. Perhaps that is the reason why John slows down in great detail. Perhaps the reason, this is, it's not just a slow reveal, this is a slow motion. Perhaps John is in a, some per personal shock here. We're like, what's going on? 
Because no other gospel told, revealed all these details. Not Matthew, not Mark, nor Luke. None of them either actually mention this foot washing. It's only John. Perhaps there's some awkwardness. Like someone washing your feet. That would be awkward. But Jesus simply does this. He does not talk. He does not offer commentary. He only offers commentary when Peter objects. But perhaps this slow motion is occurring because John is watchful. He's curious. He is wondering in his own mind, what's Jesus doing right now? See, Jesus washes each one of the disciples' feet. And now he comes to Peter. And Peter's reaction Once again, Peter is amazing right here because he helps us understand our own hearts. He helps us understand our own conscience. We can relate to him. But Peter's reaction is one of horror. It's actually normal because it can actually be very easy to be hard on Peter because he always says whatever he's thinking. He, He doesn't even really think about what he's saying. He just says it. And this story is also so well known that it's tempting for us to think, oh, we want to object. But let's consider Peter's objection very specifically here because Peter's actually being quite honest. And with that honesty, he's also being courageous in his objection. This is a normal response. So Leslie Newbegin put it this way. If the master becomes a menial slave to the the disciple then all proper order is overturned. This is a total subversion of good order as we understand it, as the smooth operation of human affairs. Jesus' action subverts this order and threatens to destabilize society. Go back to what he just said. If the master becomes a slave to the disciple, what happens? So consider the Christmas lesson of the incarnation. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. In his birth, God moved. God moved into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson put it. But there is a shocking scandal here of love and grace in this passage in light of the incarnation. Because here are Jesus' closest friends, including the one who would betray him. They are in the world and they are God's creation. And then there is, here is Jesus, the one who was in the beginning. Like that's John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Nothing without him, nothing would be made without him. And then now, in the context of this passage, the creator, the one through whom everything was made, the creator becomes a servant and displays that he is a slave to his creation. He serves his creation out of a pursuit of love and rescue. And so Peter's here and he protests this. This is a scandal in his mind. How could, how could the rabbi, how could the Lord, how could the Savior become my servants? That's what Peter is protesting. So Paul Miller, uh, who lives up in Hatfield, and he has an amazing podcast, and I commend it to you, and it's called Seeing Jesus. He highlights a point from Luke's gospel where there are two disciples who are jockeying for a position and privilege. 
is two of it's two of Jesus' closest friends. So they're wondering, like, hey, how can we have the best seat in the house? Can we be closer to Jesus? So even within the disciples' mindset, there is a hierarchy. There are the some of the disciples who are closest to Jesus, and then some of those who aren't as close to Jesus. That's and so like we even do see that practically lived out in the Gospels. Like there's is G, the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark's Gospel. Who's there? Well, it's Peter. It's John. It's James. There's so like so there's this jockeying for of the disciples to have better access to to Jesus. But so while Peter may be at the top, along with James and John. Others would perhaps would be down further on the relational ladder. But what does Jesus do? He completely subverts that religious ladder. He completely repositions himself. So taking a step out of John 13 into a, and other illustrations. Imagine uh, you're surprised if you've been jockeying for influence, a position, a, a job promotion. You want more access. You want some power. So you want to be close to... Let's think of a few examples. You want to be close to the president. You want to be um, close to the executive of your company. You, you want to be close to, to an influencer. You want the, the perks and, uh, that would come with that relationship. But only to find that this person whom you are striving to be close to wants to come to your house. And so uh, upon coming to your house, the, this person wants to make you a meal. This person wants to clean your bathroom. This person wants to sweep your chimney, to do your laundry, to do your landscaping. Wouldn't you not protest? Oh, hey, you don't need me to do that. I'm, I, I know how to cook a meal. I'm self-sufficient. I can do these things. But hear Jesus' words. If I do not wash your feet, then you can have no part of me. Jesus says that if I do not serve you, you can have no life with me. The gospel reality is that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is, his, this is all possible by his incarnation. Consider the words of Philippians 2. That was last week's prayer of adoration. Where in the words of Philippians 2 is that his humiliation is wholly and fully out of love for you. That he did not consider equality with God a thing to hold on to, but he took on the form of a servant. Everything that Jesus did in his entire life and ministry and to this day as he is on the ascended throne at God's right hand is out of love for you. And if we do not accept his service, then we have no life with him. Jesus, we see Jesus act on his love for us. This brings us to the command of Jesus. The command to Jesus. Now Jesus now offers, uh, in a sense, the last command and the example for us to follow. He points out that his disciples call him something here. And this is going to be in verses 12 to 17, where Jesus points out to you that then he says this, that verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So he points out that his disciples are calling him rabbi and Lord and master. And this goes back to this idea that names matter. 
like within the church today, there's this, uh, there's, there's, a, there's this dynamic at play because we tend to separate, we tend to compartmentalize Jesus' work within our lives, in our life. So some claim Jesus as the, their Savior, but not talking about him as their Lord and teacher. In that mindset, Jesus say, would save you from the penalty of sin, but there's a neglect of obedience. There's a neglect of ethics. And others would claim Jesus as their Lord, however, neglecting the role of salvation, transformation, evangelism. It's actually both and. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here, is that you call me your Lord, you call me your master, and I have served you. I have been, I am your slave, so you need to follow in my example. He's our teacher and our Lord who has come to serve us. And he says, Go and do likewise. It's on the basis of his authority that he says to us to go and to serve others. But the beautiful gospel reality is that Jesus, Jesus does not ask us to do anything that he has not already done himself. That is a gospel reality. That's a gospel reality. And this is actually amplified for us a few verses later. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. See, there's a, another, there's a misconception that of love and service that we have to clear up. Because we actually like to define what it means to serve, where we'll say something along the lines like, oh, I'll happily serve the church however you want, just not in the nursery. I don't want to change poopy diapers. Well, Jesus, wash your feet. When we couch it like that, there's actually limits to our humility. There are limits to service. And the question is, within Jesus, with Jesus, Jesus is saying, serve one another. So Henry Nowen, he wrote this. Somehow, we have come to believe that good leadership requires a safe distance from those whom we are called to lead. Medicine, psychiatry, and social work all offer us models in which service takes place in a one-way direction from the professional to the client. Someone serves. Someone else is being served. And be sure not to mix, up, mix those two up. But that's not the gospel. How can we lay down our lives for those with whom we do not allow ourselves to enter into deep personal relationships? See, Jesus does not allow us to define service. Jesus defines service. Jesus laid down his life for us. He died upon the cross so that you would have his life. That is what it means to serve, to lay down our lives for, for one another. And so the question is, is our life shaped by that type of service? Is our life defined by that type of service? I also want to note that while Jesus is speaking truly for all Christians, he's also speaking very specifically to the apostles. There's a special weightiness of this command in the lives of church leaders. Andy Crouch put it this way, power is not given to benefit those who hold, hold it. Power is given for the flourishing of individuals, peoples, and the cosmos itself. 
Power's right use is especially important for the flourishing of the vulnerable. The members of the human family who most need others to use power well to survive and thrive, the young, the aged, the sick, and the dispossessed. Power is not the opposite of servanthood. Rather, servanthood, ensuring the flourishing of others, is actually the very purpose of power. Servanthood is the very purpose of power. Servanthood, ensuring the flourishing of others, is the very purpose of power. Again, that is the gospel. That is what we see Jesus doing here. And so as we think about uh, this as a church and as we wrap up, the church is meant to be defined by such service and humility because at the very center of the church should be a person, and his name is Jesus. And we need to remind ourselves over and over again that Jesus did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life for as a ransom for many. Jesus came for those who are spiritually poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He came for those who are spiritually bankrupt, to feel their need of him and respond to him. Because when we actually respond to God, something miraculous happens. We begin, we start this lifelong transformational process where we begin to become more like him. And so the fruit of this gospel is that we serve because we've been served by Jesus. It's my hope and our prayer that we'll be a church that is shaped by such love. Let's pray.